Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. So uh, welcome to our 11 o'clock service. We are in back in the Gospel of Matthew after a few weeks that we took off for, for Advent. Uh, getting people prepared for the birth of Christ and talking about John the Baptist and talking about some of the people that were instrumental in that and the angels. Uh, we're now going back into the Gospel of Matthew. Our, my sermon title today is Imprisoned and Rejected. Imprisoned and Rejected. And you'll see exactly why that's our, our title for today. You know, one of the things I want to mention is that the way we teach here at Celebrate Seniors is what's called expository preaching. Now, that's a fancy word, but I'll, I'll explain what it means. It basically means to kind of expose the scriptures. We take the word of God and we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why I would like doing that. One is that you can't kind of hit and miss. You have to preach through the entire uh, word of God. You can't just select the scriptures you like and avoid the other ones you don't. It's also easier for me as your pastor because I know exactly what's going to be taught next week and the week after because we just continue to follow along. So, you know, sometimes I get a good verse and sometimes Hal gets a bad verse, right, Hal? So... <laughs> <laughs> it has happened. It has happened. But the other way to teach is, is fine. It's called topical. And that, you're probably familiar with topical preaching. Uh, sometimes a pastor will give a four or five week sermon uh, series on, on uh, uh, worry. And I'll find all of the scripture verses talking about worry and why you shouldn't worry. And those are great ways to teach as well. Um, but again, we prefer the expository. Last week, uh, we were in chapter 4 of Matthew after, after Christmas. And this is where Jesus was tempted by Satan. Jesus was tempted by Satan. And remember, we the, the title of my message was, This is Just a Test. And we saw how Jesus had used the scriptures in part of his preparation. He knew the scriptures. And we know that we're going to be tempted. We're going to be tested from time to time. And we need to be prepared. And if we're prepared, we don't have as much to, to, to fear. So today we'll continue in the fourth chapter of Matthew. Again, my message today is called Imprisoned and Rejected. Uh, we're talking about the imprisonment of John the Baptist and how Jesus was rejected. And we're beginning in verse 12. Or uh, Matthew says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Matthew is giving us a very short account of the arrest of John the Baptist. And he's doing this basically to put a timestamp, a timestamp on the time that Jesus left Nazareth which is where he grew up, that's where his family was from, and left Nazareth and went to, to Galilee. Now, Jesus was raised and did uh, his earliest ministry in, in Nazareth. 
Uh, early in the ministry, however, he departed and he went to Galilee. Matthew tells us that, again, this was the time that John the Baptist was imprisoned. And that's the first part of my message, imprisoned and rejected. So I'm going to spend a little time today on why John the Baptist was imprisoned. The events surrounding John the Baptist's death is, is recorded in both the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. Um, and um, it all had to do with uh, Herod Antipas, his wife Herodias, and a dance that Salome did. And you probably remember that, okay? That was the death of John the Baptist. But let me, let me talk a little bit about the death of John the Baptist because that gives us a, a clue into this family of the Herods. Verse 6 says, for example, this is uh, chapter 14, but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he, that's Herod, promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, being prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a, a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. When his, then his disciples came, took away the body, and buried it, and went and told Jesus. So again, this is, the, this is the account of John the Baptist's death. Now, many scholars believe that John was probably imprisoned for two years. So Matthew is marking the time that John was in prison, which was probably two years before this event, this give me his head on a platter. Um, John the Baptist was imprisoned by a man named Herod Antipas. Now, he is the son of Herod the Great. And I know there's a lot of Herods, and when I start talking about history and all of the Herods and all of their sons and their daughters and the kingdom and stuff like that, people's eyes roll back in their head. And, and just to understand that, that this Herod is not Herod the Great. He's Herod the Tetrarch. Now, he's, Herod Antipas called the Tetrarch because the Tetrarch means one-fourth. So when Herod the Great died, this is Herod the Great, which is the one that the Magi came to see and said, where is this Messiah to be born? That was Herod the Great. And when he died, his kingdom was split up into four different kingdoms. And they were all kings, but they were also called tetrarchs, which means that they had, uh, they had, they had uh, responsibility over a, a quarter of his, his territory. Um, now, there's another Herod called Philip the Tetrarch. He was the half-brother of Herod Antipas. And the reason was is because Herod, Herod the Great had five wives. So we had all these different children and all these different grandchildren. He had something like 35 different grandchildren, all different, these different people. And the thing you want to understand about the Herods is they were all evil. They were horribly immoral people. And they weren't even Jews, okay? They were Edomians. Basically, they had converted to Judaism a few centuries before, but they were Edomians and they were foreigners. Matthew just makes this comment about the imprisonment of John again as a, as a time stamp. But we have to know that J Herod had imprisoned John because John, John the Baptist, had rebuked Herod, the king, because of his immorality. And the fact that he had taken Herodias, which was his brother's wife, in as his wife. He had married his brother's wife. And this, was, this is immoral. This is against the law. It, even today. That's, that's again, it's, we just don't do those types of things. And, and John the Baptist called him out. 
called him out for. The Gospel of Luke calls it this, says it this way. He says, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by John about, about Herodias, his brother's wife, and about the evil things Herod was doing, added this to everything else that John had said, locked up John into prison. So Herod had John put in prison, John the Baptist, this prophet, the one that, was, that came in the spirit of Elijah to speak about the coming of the Messiah that was in the desert that people were flocking to and being baptized. He had him in prison for no other reason than calling him out for the sin that he had committed. You know, the Bible tells us that Herod was actually afraid. He was afraid to harm John. That's why he was alive in prison for two years. He knew that John was a righteous man. He was also afraid of the people because they knew that John the Baptist was a, was a prophet. So we read basically that, that, again, Herod put John in prison to, to shut him up. And this was all because of Herodias. Now, of all of the people in the line of Herod, Herodias was probably the most vile, the most immoral. She was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, which meant that her husband was also her uncle. Okay, so just the, the whole family of Herod the Great is full of incest, immorality, brutality, murder. Herod, again, had five different wives, but the most horrible, ghastly, immoral woman of all was Herodias. Herodias and her exploits are, are, are legendary. She was the one, remember, that had her daughter, Salome, dance and then ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Immoral, rotten, vile. She was the one, basically, who had John the Baptist arrested and thrown into jail because of the truth. John spoke the truth, and it got him put in jail. Now, remember um, that John is shining a light into where darkness is. He's speaking, speaking truth where there's lies. He's speaking morality where there's immorality. And actually, this is the role of the prophet. This is exactly the role of the prophet. Also, Herod Antipas, remember, was not, was not even a Jew. He was an Edomite. So Herod had John in prison, but John had the courage. He had the internal fortitude. Even though he was ultimately beheaded, he spoke the truth. That was the role of the prophet. God knows we need more people like John the Baptist today. If you look around, we are all surrounded by immorality. We need people to, to stand up and say what is right and what is wrong. All too often, Christian pastors, I have to say, Christian pastors, even in their own, on their own pulpits, in their own congregation, are afraid to speak truth and tell people what is right and what is wrong. However, people want to know the truth. People want to be able to know what is moral. They want somebody to stand up for morality. And there's actually three reasons. If you really think about it, there's, there's a number of reasons, but I boiled it down to three reasons why we need more people like John the Baptist today. Three reasons. Number one, God appointed the prophets to confront not just Israel, but the nations. This is what he tells Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an amazing prophet. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God is speaking to Jeremiah and calling him into ministry. And he says, I appoint you, Jeremiah, to be a prophet to the nations. To the nations. That word, by the way, is ethnos. Okay? The idea where we have ethnicities. I'm, I'm appointing you to go a prophet to not just Jerusalem and Judea, but to the nations. Most of the Old Testament prophets shared God's words, including words of warning and judgment. Remember Jonah? Jonah went to Nineveh. Nineveh is not a suburb of Jerusalem. Nineveh is a foreign country where they were doing immoral things. Number two, 
morality and ethics is the basis of any civilization, every civilization. Just let's focus a little bit on the United States of America, a country that we know more than anywhere else. John Adams, one of our founding fathers and the second president of the United States, is quoted as saying, our constitution, by the way, he ended up writing most of it, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is altogether inadequate for the government of any other. You see, the thing is, is that if we lose the basis of a morality, we lose the basis of our government, our laws and our civilization. John, also, John Adams also said, liberty once lost is lost forever. And our liberty, our liberty is linked to our morality, whether we know it or not. Our liberty is linked to our morality. Without morality, there is no liberty. It takes courage to speak up, but great leaders through the past have always spoken up. And by the way, our morality is based on the word of God. Number three out of three, we are told by Jesus to love our neighbor as ourself. We're supposed to pray for our enemy. And speaking the truth in love is the most loving thing you can do. Speaking the truth in love to your neighbor, to your friend, to your child, to your grandchild is the most loving thing you can do. If you love people, you will tell them the truth. If you care about people, you'll tell them about Jesus. Because you see, the thing is that the Bible says that all of us are born with a sin nature. And that sin nature will ultimately lead up to us to our demise. But the good news is that light has dawned. And Jesus is the Christ and our sins can be forgiven. The, the most loving thing you can do is to let people that while they have a sin nature, there is Jesus who can forgive them their sins. God will give them a tender heart. But it takes courage. You know, and sometimes you wonder about John the Baptist. John the Baptist spoke the truth in love, but he ended up getting arrested, ended up losing his, his, his head. Um, you know, he again, he was the one that was uh, called in the spirit of Elijah. He was to turn the people's hearts back to God. But he was arrested and he was murdered. We kind of take a look and they say, well, how can God do that? Well, God has a plan. And God, as long as God has a plan, and we'll see this a little bit later, as long as God has a plan, until that plan is fulfilled, nothing can stop that person, that prophet, that pastor, that individual from accomplishing what God wants them to accomplish. It's all, timing is all part of God's plan. God's timing, and this brings us to the second part of our message. Remember we said the message was imprisoned, which was John the Baptist, and the second part of my message is rejected. And let's see how God, how, how, why Jesus left Galilee and went to Nazareth. Have you ever thought about that? Why did Jesus leave Nazareth, I'm sorry, Nazareth, and go to Galilee? Well, I'm glad you asked. In Galilee, Jesus went to Samaria and met the Samaritan woman at the well. It was the very first person, by the way, that Jesus ever revealed that he was the Messiah. Was a Gentile, was a Samaritan that he told that he was the Messiah. It was in Galilee that was primarily a, a, a Gentile population. Many of Jesus' miracles, many of the people in Galilee had witnessed Jesus. They were healed by Jesus. Tens of thousands of people had heard Jesus' message, and they were primarily Gentiles. Now, the timing of Jesus going to Galilee was John's imprisonment. The reason for Jesus going to Galilee from Nazareth was because he was rejected. In our reading today, it just says simply that Jesus leaving Nazareth came to dwell in Capernaum, but the why is not given. But fortunately, there are many chapters and many books in the Bible, and we know exactly why the why was. The why is given to us in Luke chapter 4. 
Jesus is in Nazareth. He goes into the temple and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. You know the story? He's in the temple. It was the synagogue, it was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah and Jesus begins to read. And this is what he reads. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This was a familiar passage to the people because it spoke of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Jesus took the scroll, handed it back to his attendant, sat down, and he said, this reading is fulfilled in your hearing today. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. And the people started looking at each other and they wondered, how could this be? And they started saying, isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus knew exactly they were speaking. He, he knew that they knew him as the carpenter's son. He was just one of the local boys, maybe a smart boy, maybe a rabbi, but he was just one of them. How could this possibly be the Messiah? So Jesus says, he says, I, I tell you, I know, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Uh, you'll say to me, physician, heal thyself, heal thyself. And then he tells them the story of Elijah. You know, in the days of Elijah, heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and Elijah was, there was a great, fire, a great famine, and Elijah ministered to the widow at Zarephath, who was a Gentile, not a Jew. But Elijah ministered to her. And then there was a man named uh, Naaman, the Syrian, who came in and needed to be healed. And there was no one healed in the land except for Naaman the Syrian. Well, this incensed the people. I mean, they, they, knew he, they knew what he was saying. He was rebuking them for not believing he was the Messiah. And they were filled with rage. The Bible says this. It says, so all those in the synagogue in Nazareth, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up to thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. You see, this is the rejection of Jesus Christ, but Lotus, what they couldn't do, he walked right through them. John the Baptist, while he was preparing the way for the Messiah, while he was preaching in the desert, some people think maybe 15, 20 years before Jesus came on the scene, nobody could harm him. When his mission was done is when he could be arrested. God will protect. God protected Jesus. Jesus was going to go to the cross and die for the sins of all men. At the same time, he was able to walk through the crowd because his time had not yet come. You know, Jesus said this. He says, actually, Peter said this. He says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. You see, persecution and suffering has always been part of the church. From the earliest days to today, suffering and persecution has always been a part of our ministry. It's actually what God has called us to do, to endure persecution. The early church suffered greatly, was persecuted by both the Jews and then also by Rome. Now, you can kind of understand why the Jews would persecute the church. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah, so they persecuted those that did. We saw this early with Saul. Saul persecuting with the Jews. The Bible says that he was filled with 
hate and anger for the Christians. But the question is, why did Rome persecute the Jews? Often when you think of persecution, you think about the Colosseums and you think of all of the Christians that were killed by the earlier emperors up until the time of Constantine. Why did Rome persecute the, why did Rome persecute the Christians so much? Well, again, I believe it's because God has a, a plan. And persecution and suffering is actually part of that plan. You know, the, the Jewish religion, for example, was considered legitimate. And while the Christians were part of the Jewish religion, a sect of Judaism, they were protected. But ultimately, that didn't make any sense. The, God had called a, a new light, a, a new covenant for all the people. And Christianity couldn't survive as a sect of Judaism. Despite the toleration that Rome had for any other religion, remember their gods were nothing more than the Greek gods renamed, the Jewish people were protected. Rome didn't care what your religion was. They really didn't. As long as you paid your taxes, they were happy. But for some reason, they singled out the Christians. And we know that the apostle Paul and Timothy and Silas and Barnabas and Peter were all denounced it's given us to within the Bible by the Roman authorities. They were in prison. They were, many of them died. Many of them died. In 64 AD, according to history, and this is well known, a fire broke out in Rome. It broke out in the merchant shops around Circus Maximus, which was one of these Colosseums right downtown Rome. Uh, for six days it burned, and two-thirds of Rome uh, had been destroyed. Now, the person that was in charge of Rome at the time was a guy named Nero. And the people of Rome knew that Nero was a madman. I mean, he was, the, he was the emperor, but he was the emperor at 17 years old, and he was a crazy man. He was known to have a fascination with fire, uh, like a modern-day pyromaniac, or what we call an arsonist. He just had this fascination with him. So when fire broke out in Rome, suspicion immediately fell to Nero. After all, he was looking for a, a building project, and if he cleared some of the land out, he could build one of his, of his buildings. So Nero turned the suspicion against him, away from him, and to the Christians. And people picked it up, and there were literally thousands of Christians that went to the Colosseum. They were arrested, they were killed. Um, Tassius. Tassius is a Roman historian who also was an emperor in the third century. I love this because the writings of Tassius have been translated now into modern English. You can actually read them. Speaks of Pontius Pilate, speaks of Jesus Christ, speaks of the Christians. He was not a Christian, didn't like the Christians, but he speaks of them. And this is what he says about the, about the fire of Rome. He said, an immense multitude was convicted. These are Christians. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illuminations. The Christians were set up as human torches when daylight had expired. Many Christians were seized, tortured, and killed in the arena. And persecutions have always been part of this. This is going back to the 64 AD, but persecutions have continued to this day. Organizations like Voice of the Martyr and other organizations today that are tracking, mar tracking martyrdom and persecution say that there's over 100,000 Christians that are killed annually, 100,000 for nothing, no other reason than being a Christian. Uh, according to recent reports released in England, and this is amazing, they said that 245 million Christians are persecuted. 245 million Christians worldwide are persecuted in some way. They're denied property rights, 
freedom of assembly, they are persecuted in some way. And this, this amount grows every year by 10 to 15%. Places like uh, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, North, Northeastern Nigeria, and the Philippines, the extremist groups are persecuting the Christians, and their persecution goes unchecked by the local governing authorities. They look the other way. This is happening right now as well as in, in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. The Palestinian Authority are in charge of Bethlehem. And so far, 17 churches have been burned to the ground in Bethlehem. Dozens of pastors have been killed. Christian population has gone from a majority population, 45, 45 to 55%, down to less than 8%, mainly because they've driven the Christians out of the area. Persecution goes on. In John chapter 5, Jesus says this. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You were of the world, and the world, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world, word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then a little later in John 16, Jesus says, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're doing a service to God. And see, this hap is happening today. People will kill Christians and believe that they're doing in the name of their God. However, their God's name is often Allah. So, so here we are. We're in the free state of Florida. And so often, okay, we're still unwilling to stand up for the unborn, for common decency, for morality. We have no persecution, and at the same time, we're sometimes unwilling to speak the truth in love. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor coveters, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Where are today's prophets? Where are those that have the courage of John the Baptist to know that God has a role for them, that somebody needs to stand up for morality? But let's continue. Our scripture reading, to, scripture and to, to continue in our reading today. After remember, it said, it said, after leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. And then Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah and says, The land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. You know, Galilee of the Gentiles, this area of Galilee, especially at the time of Isaiah, was known to be a, a Gentile region. Over the centuries, it had gone from Gentile to more Jew. By the time Jesus was there, it was part of the Jewish region. Remember, the north of Judah, there was Samaria, and then north of Samaria was Galilee, which was, was Jewish territory. But at the same time, there were millions of Gentiles, millions of Gentiles there. Now, this land referenced as Zebulon and Naphtali is named for two of the sons of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. We have 12 tribes of Israel. Two of the sons were Zebulon and Naphtali. They were two of Jacob's younger sons. And therefore, that, those were the names of the two tribes. Now, when Moses brought the people of Israel into the land of uh, people, people that came from Egypt into the land of Israel, he divided the land up 
And the two northernmost tribes were to be Naphtali and Zebulon. They were going to occupy that area of northern Galilee into modern-day Lebanon. It was where they were to, to settle. Now, these two tribes of the 12 tribes were also part of the 10 tribes that separated from the line of David. Remember, after Solomon, the 10 tribes of the north broke off. The two tribes, say, to the south, that was Jerusalem. The 10 tribes to the north became more and more evil, following more and more foreign gods. They had no good king. They were the first ones to be attacked by the Assyrians. And when the Assyrians came in from the north, guess where they came in first? They came into the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. They were the most northern part of Galilee. And this is where the enemies would come in. They sat in darkness. That's what Matthew says. It says, this is darkness. Isaiah said that they sat in darkness. The area of Galilee is north of Samaria. This is the first people that were to be conquered. This is when Sennacherib, from the, uh, the Syrian, came in. He conquered them first before he came all the way down to Samaria. Samaria was a, was a walled city a fortified city, but there was no fortifications up in Naphtali and Zebulon. Matthew says the people that have seen a great light. Now, what is that light that they've seen? They've seen Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world, and this is where Jesus went. He left Nazareth, and he went to Galilee. And those who sat in the region in shadow of death, remember the wages of sin is death. Light has dawned. Light is dawned on these people because Jesus left Nazareth and went to Galilee. You know, Jesus was the light. He was a great teacher, a rabbi. There was really no one quite like him. The Jews were constantly trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could trick him so that they could either mock him, destroy his reputation, or have him arrested by by, uh, by others. Uh, there was a story that's in the, in the 15th chapter of John, and this is where a woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus. Remember that story? Um, I'll, just, I'll just review it for you. Uh, they, they come to him and they say, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that they should be stoned, but what do you say? You see, Moses said that they should be stoned, but the Romans said you can't stone anybody because that's capital murder. Only the Romans had the right to be able to stone somebody. But if you remember the story, Jesus didn't respond to these accusers. The woman is laying there. The accusers are talking to Jesus, but he's not talking to them. He, instead, he bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. Now, people have speculated what he's writing. He's writing their names and their sins. I love that. You know, he's just, we, we don't know what he's doing. He could be doing tic-tac-toe. We're not sure exactly what Jesus is doing, except that he's not responding to the accusers. And one by one, the accusers leave. And then Jesus turns to the woman, and he said, Woman, who accuses you now? And she says, No one, Lord. And he says, I don't accuse you either. Your sins are forgiven. Then he says this. He says, Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. See, that is the words of the prophet. When we speak the truth and love, what our ending statement is to say, go and sin no more. See, a light can be dawned. You can shine light into the darkness, and the darkness will scatter, but you've got to be willing to, sh to shine the light. That's the words of the prophet. In fact, the very next verse says this, and we'll close with this verse. Jesus then spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light.
See, this ties in exactly what Isaiah had said, that uh, light had shone in the darkness. John the Baptist had a mission, and his mission was to preach truth and morality and prepare a way for the Messiah. And whether you know it or not, that is our job as well. Our job is to prepare people's hearts to receive the Messiah. And the only way we can do that is by speaking the truth in love. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.